Exodus 6. <clears throat> and I liked um, some of the things that Lithia said uh, about redemption and um, praying about God rescuing the family and so forth because that's, the, that's our theme tonight is I think if I had to title this message tonight I would call it Swallowing Up the Serpent The Redemption of God God is our Redeemer and Exodus chapter 6 is going to set the table for the first interaction um, in, in terms of a sign or a miracle that's done through uh, Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. So we're in Exodus 6 and we'll be looking at our God who is our Redeemer. Exodus chapter 6. Now you remember in Exodus chapter 5 we saw that Moses was pretty bummed out. He had hit the obstacles of uh, not seeing God's plan come to fruition in the first encounter with Pharaoh. And uh, before we even do that let's just pray. Father we just ask for your covering right now. As we study the word, we ask for your blessing upon uh, Jason and Lathea. Thank you for her testimony. We know that she uh, has seen your hand guide her through the steps of life. We, we pray that you'll continue to do that. Use her in mighty ways, Father. And tonight, as we study your word, may you be honored. May the Holy Spirit teach us. May I simply get out of your way. And may you uh, use this time to grow your people, strengthen us, encourage us in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Exodus 5, <clears throat> Moses returned, verse 22, to the Lord and said, O Lord, why hast thou brought harm to this people? Why didst thou ever send me? Remember, we looked at that why question last week. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done harm to this people, and thou hast not delivered thy people. And I like this last phrase, at all. At all. You haven't done anything at all. Give me a little bit of a sign. Give me something. Moses is pretty bummed out. And remember, God had already told him that it was going to take a while that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh would not let the people go. And then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 6, verse 1, Now you shall see what I will do. Now that uh, idea of now is now the time has come. There's no further delay. Now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, or the NIV says, because of my mighty hand, the New King James says, with a strong hand he shall let them go, and under compulsion, there's that phrase again if you have the New American Standard, he shall drive them out of his land. Now it's interesting that God calls it his land. And because uh, Pharaoh is a type of Satan, we know there's some passages that we could connect to this, like 2 Corinthians 4.4, uh, calls Satan the God of this world, you remember? You remember in the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, Satan, if I can paraphrase, paraphrase says to Jesus that all the kingdoms of the world have been given to me. He showed them to Jesus in a moment of time and he said, I can give them to whoever I want. And he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you. And of course, Jesus said, be gone, Satan. You shall worship only the Lord your God, him alone. And so it's his land, but it's really not his land because ultimately God is sovereign. And no, notice the phrase, under compulsion, I am going to make Pharaoh do it. He's going to do what I want him to do because I'm the true God. And even if they call Pharaoh a God or the only son of the gods, it doesn't really matter because I'm the only true God and therefore I'm going to make Pharaoh do 
what I want him to do. And of course, we know Pharaoh's, one of his biggest problems was pride, and he certainly didn't want to hear things like that. Now, God spoke further, verse 2, to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. You're going to see that about five different times. I am the Lord, the self-existent one. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, we're not quite sure what to make of this because we know the name of the Lord was used early on in the Bible. But I think what God is saying is that in the way he's about to reveal himself in the Exodus and to Moses, he had never done that before to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, they had some experiences with God, but now God is going to unleash his power in the Exodus. They're going to see the plagues, the judgments of God. They're going to see his mighty redeeming hand, and they're even going to experience the Shekinah glory of God. You remember, it will be the uh, pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day. God will be resident with the people consistently through the wilderness. And therefore, he's going to reveal the, uh, to himself to them in a unique way. Verse 4, And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of, the, of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. To this point, uh, even though Canaan was given to Abraham, he was simply a sojourner. If you want to write a parallel passage, it's Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. And it speaks of Abraham In verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So they had some grazing rights, they had some burial ground there, but they had not really sunk their roots in, in the land of Canaan. So really they had not taken possession of the land as of yet. And furthermore, God says in verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Now, God is saying, look, I see what's going on. I see uh, the point at which the people are, and I am going to redeem them, and I'm going to use you, Moses. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. Here it is again, number two. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. And I I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now I want you to see just kind of a theme here. And if you want to write something next to this section, you could write something about God being our redeemer or our redeeming God. Notice he says, I am the Lord. Notice this next phrase, I will bring you out. I will deliver you or free you, says the NIV. And I will redeem you. Now, this is the work of our God. As a matter of fact, many times in the book of Isaiah, God calls himself the Redeemer. I am a God who redeems. That is a big part of God's action in the world and action in our lives. God is a redeeming God. I will redeem you, and notice, I will judge them. End of verse 6. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I'm going to bring you out but I'm going to level judgment on them. And that's how God really redeems. And if you think about the uh, end times and the scenario that's going to happen in the end times, this is precisely what God's going to do. He's going to bring his people out of Egypt, as it were, and he's going to judge Egypt. And this is a type, if you will, of the end times, but it's also a type or a figure of salvation because God delivers us from the burdens of the world. 
sometimes much like the Ouija board that um, Lafia's dad experienced, Satan does not want to let go. He puts many burdens. He does not want to release the captives. He says, get back to work, as we've seen in previous messages in the book of Exodus. He wants the people wrapped up and he doesn't want them redeemed, but God wants to set us free. In Isaiah 54, 5, God says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. In Galatians 4, 5, it says, in order that he, Jesus, might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word redeemed is a Greek word, and it means uh, to buy a slave from freedom. If you wanted to give a uh, basic definition of what redemption is, it means to buy a slave out of slavery. As a matter of fact, I've heard stories in some countries where uh, literally people are uh, sold into slavery, where families are ravaged even today, and people are sold into, into slavery situations where they're abused beyond what I could say to you tonight. Um, and what happens is there are Christians who go down there with finances and buy people out of slavery with money, literally buy them from radical Muslim groups and stuff like that. That's happening even today. And so the picture of redemption or redeeming is to buy back or to buy out of. And literally when you were saved, when I was saved, we were bought or purchased out of the slave market of sin, out of the burdens of sin and bondage. You see, everything that Egypt represents, that's what we were purchased out of. It is interesting, though, to think about what we're going to see a little bit in the future, which is when it gets tough for Israel in the wilderness, they want to go back to Egypt. And sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we only think of the good things. Like they think of the food. Oh, we had leeks and onions and we had meat and stuff like that. And they forget that they were getting beaten up every day and they were in slavery in Egypt. They just remembered those little good snippets that they had. And sometimes that's what the devil does to us. You know, we're walking with the Lord for a little while. We get settled in. We get kind of a routine going. And then all of a sudden Egypt becomes attractive again. And sometimes we forget what we've been purchased out of. But literally, we've been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold from our aimless conduct, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as without spot or blemish, says Peter. We were not purchased with money. We were purchased with a price much bigger than that, a ransom. We were ransomed out of Egypt by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a high price. Since you've been bought with a price, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, therefore glorify God in your body. You see, the price was high. It was the blood of God. Literally, God is dying on that cross to buy us out of Egypt, to buy us from the slave market of sin, to redeem us. We have a redeeming God. He does not want us to stay in bondage. He doesn't want us to be slaves. He wants to set us free. And Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, sometimes we don't walk in the full privileges of that freedom. Sometimes, unfortunately, by choice. But God is a redeeming God and he says, hey, I'm going to bring you guys out and I'm going to bring you to a place of joy and freedom. And then I will take you, verse 7, for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I don't know what your burdens are like, 
But I know that a big time burden was lifted from my life upon the time when I got saved. I've even heard people uh, tell me that after they prayed the sinner's prayer, it felt like a weight was lifted from their lives. Have you experienced that? Have you seen that God is a God who not only lifts the burden of bondage from our lives when we get saved, but he daily wants to bear our burdens incredibly. Uh, you know, there's the old story about the attorney uh, or the, the guy who hire, hire, he hires an attorney to worry for him. You remember this one? And, you know, f- the friend says, what, what, what do you mean you've hired? And I said, I've, I've hired this guy and he does all my worrying for me. He says, well, what, what does this cost? And he says, it costs $10,000 a week for this guy to worry for me. He goes, how are you going to pay for it? And he says, I don't know, but that's his problem. So anyway, you get the point. God delivers us from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And of course, because Egypt is a picture of the world, God has lifted our burdens. You see, our biggest burden, when we really think about our life before Christ, is the burden of bondage to sin See, we don't know how to fix it. We don't know how to fix our emptiness. We don't know how to fix our uh, going back to sin and being in slavery to sin. And we don't know how to fix our guilt. And as a matter of fact, today the IRS has a guilt fund and I understand that they get millions of dollars a year just from people who feel guilty about not paying taxes from the past. They literally call it a guilt fund. And people pay money to try to alleviate guilt. But the only way that you can be lifted from the burden of guilt is to know that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so God is the one that lifts our burdens and he wants to carry them. In Psalm um, 68, 19, it says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Selah. That means pause or think about it. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In 1 John, John tells us that the commandments of God are not burdensome. Because when you're walking in the Holy Spirit, and you're communing with the God who made you and created you, What burden would that be to fulfill his will? What's a burden is when you're fighting God. Woe to him, Isaiah says, who strives with his maker. We think sometimes that we can fight God. We think, oh, you know, sometimes it'll be cool that we can get away with it. And then David testifies in Psalm 32 and we can think of other cases in the Bible where it says that the heavy hand of God was on his son. Sometimes God will place his hand upon us to get our attention because if we keep going in a wrong direction we'll be in big trouble so our God is a redeeming God and he says and I verse 8 will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham Isaac and Jacob I will give it to you for a possession here's the third time he says I am the Lord now why does God keep saying I am the Lord I think to underscore promises to reiterate who he is. You see, God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the land of Canaan would be theirs. And there is something in the Bible, incredibly, that it says it's impossible for God to do. It's found in Hebrews 6, and it's found in Titus chapter 1. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. 
So if you ever have somebody say, is there something that God can't do? Can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Tell me, preacher. I don't know. That's kind of a silly question. It's a nonsense question, actually. But there is something that God cannot do. He will not, and he cannot, by his nature, lie. He is truth. He speaks nothing but truth. And so since he made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he said, it will come to pass. I told them that they're going to get the land and they're going to get it. So the Lord's encouraging Moses, who's downcast and wondering, are the people really going to be delivered? God's saying, hey, I promised way before you were even born, Moses, that I was going to do this and I've decided to make you my deliverer. I'm fulfilling my plan. You are simply a vessel. Go with the flow, Mo. (laughs) Just step up, man. I'm going to handle it. All right? And so Moses, feeling a little bit more courageous, he's encouraged. Hey, God did promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reiterated those promises. As a matter of fact, Moses wrote Genesis. I don't know at what point, but I know he wrote it. He's got to be encouraged. He's got to feel like, hey, you know what? God's, he's reassuring me now. And so Moses spoke to the sons of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses. And notice why they didn't listen on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so overwhelmed by a situation, by life, that even though you knew God, you still felt like you were in one of those modes where, I don't want to hear that. Don't be quoting Bible verses to me. I don't want to listen to Christian radio right now. I'm turning it off. I know, I, ha- I know about that. I know of the facts, but I'm too overwhelmed. You ever been there before? Let's be honest tonight. We've all probably been there before, right? So Moses is excited. Maybe you've run into one of your Christian friends. You know, you're all jacked up. You're feeling spiritually high. You go to a brother who's been in the Lord 20 years. Hey, man, you won't believe They're like, oh, woe is me. <laughs> somebody's got my tail you know that whole thing they got the Eeyore syndrome you wonder what's going on I just got pumped up I just talked to the Lord what's your problem now does the Lord rebuke the people no because he knows what they've been through and he knows what you've been through and sometimes that's all you can say man you can just be honest man I don't I don't know I don't know where I'm at. The people wouldn't listen. And Moses is having one of those moments, one of those, I would say, mommy moments. Nobody's listening to me. Have you had one of those mommy moments before? No, you guys haven't. I've had them. (laughs) So the Lord spoke to Moses, nothing about the people, saying, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. This is a command. There's no negotiation, Moses. I know they're not listening right now, but I'm in control. Just go and do what I said. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. I told you, Lord, I can't articulate these things well. They won't li- your own people won't listen to me. How is he going to listen? Oh, we've all had those days before, too. Nobody's listening, Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. It's a charge. It's go time. Moses, we're not discussing this any longer. Here's a charge. I charge you, 
before the Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy, right? This is a command. This is something that you've got to pay attention to. Just go and do it. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to pause for a commercial timeout. And I'm not joking. Actually, it's a genealogical pause. A quick timeout to now go to a genealogy of the heads of their father's households, namely Reuben, Simeon, and uh, Levi. So quickly, if you look at verse 14, these are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn. And I know you want to hear me pronounce those names, but you're not going to. Verse 15, and the sons of Simeon, Jamul, and I like this name, Jamin. We're jamming in the name of... Oh, sorry. Anyway. And these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath and Merari, who later designed the Ferrari. No, actually, that's not in your Bible. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. And if you skip down, uh, verse 19, these are the sons of Merari, which, by the way, I, I believe is an Egyptian name. Mali and Mushi, he later started a chain of restaurants. I'm just kidding around, folks. But uh, this is a genealogical list, and, <laughs> and we're just having a little fun with it. But uh, if you uh, go down to verse 25, it's where the list ends. Um, and there's a lot of difficult names in there, but I think this is just reiterating Uh, the line of Moses and Aaron. This is where the, by the way, the high priest came from, the priestly line. And as you drop down to verse 26, it was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their host. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of, uh, of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. So a genealogical break, sometimes you run the, into those in the Bible. I always try to read them because there are sometimes little nuggets of gold in there. So I don't mean to make light of the, the genealogies. But oftentimes they were put there to um, give the Israelites something to go back to and trace the, the lineage and stuff like that. So this is important uh, lineage because it is the line from which the high priest and the priests would come from. So with that, now it came, verse 28, it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. And by the way, if you look back at verse 27, there's kind of of this reiteration of uh, who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, it was Moses and Aaron. When you read commentaries on the book of Exodus, you usually see that there's no Egyptian history that uh, they can discover that there's any backdrop in recorded Egyptian history about the Exodus. And so on the History Channel, not so long ago, I gave somebody a tape from the church and there was some special going on. And there's this guy that's researched um, some stuff trying to find out if, if anything in Egyptian history chronicles anything about the Exodus. And they found something that's like a stone and it's from the period about 1500, B, they call it BCE now, before the Common Era. And this particular, something like a cuneiform stone, depicts days of darkness in Egypt and cataclysmic weather and lightning and stuff like that happening in the land of Egypt around the time of the Exodus. It's been buried at the bottom of an Egyptian museum and, uh, and apparently uh, archaeologists can't get to it. And I'm not sure if that's because the Egyptians don't want it to be found because it doesn't bode well for their history of having the Jewish God and the Jewish people dominate them in some kind of encounter. Uh, I'm, I'm 
guessing that that's why some of this has not come out. But if you haven't seen this yet, uh, Ron Wyatt also discovered, um, he did some research uh, around this area of Egypt and found um, what he, s- he described as chariot wheels under the Red Sea. And if, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen these pictures, but literally with underwater photography, they've taken pictures of uh, what they believe are Egyptian chariot wheels under the Red Sea. They can't lift them up because they've been there for so long that they're so fragile that they would break apart. And so it's just interesting to see some of this stuff coming forward and some research being done to tell us that not only the Bible, but Egyptian history tells us a little bit about the Exodus. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, here it is again, I am unskilled in speech, how then will Pharaoh listen to me? You wonder how many times is Moses going to go back there, but you know, Moses is a lot like us because we're full of excuses as to why we can't do things. Lord, I'm not this. Lord, I'm not that. I'm just reminding you again. Sometimes we have this tendency to keep going back to our weaknesses. Remember Sunday I told you about Peter being given a new name? Remember what Jesus called Peter? He called him the rock. And Jesus saw what Peter would become. Sometimes we are always looking back instead of looking at what God can make us. We get into, into this negative mode. I'm unskilled at this. I'm un- Wait a minute. You serve the God who spoke the universe into existence. He made the mouth. He can deal with your inadequacies and shortcomings. And sometimes we spend so much time focusing on the negative. And then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 7, verse 1, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh. Now you thought you were unskilled in speech. I'm going to make you like God before Pharaoh. Talk about a transformation. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Just repetition of the promises and the command. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Here it is. That I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Part of the way that God's going to demonstrate his power, his redeeming power, is to allow Pharaoh to be hardened because this is going to go on. This is going to be an ongoing interchange between the two. Now, he goes on and he says this, When, not if, but when, Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt and by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now notice not only the Hebrews, but the Egyptians will know who God is when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. And so Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now all of this is built up to this first miraculous encounter between Moses, Aaron, and the Pharaoh. But I want you to notice something here that you could look over. How old was uh, Moses when this happened? He was 80, and Aaron was 83. Their primary life's ministry work started in their 80s. You know, sometimes we think, maybe it's just passed me by. Maybe God can't really use me. Maybe my best days are behind me. Hey, look, you got Moses and Aaron in their 80s. 
and doing their primary work for God. It's never too late. It's never too late. Sometimes you think, maybe it's passed me by. Maybe I've blown it too many times. Man, I'll be, you know, sometimes we go back and we look at a stretch of time. All these years that went by where I could have been growing closer to the Lord and, and I could have been serving. Hey, you know what? Don't look behind. It doesn't do you any good. If you want to look behind to testify to God's goodness, go ahead and do that. And even sometimes to remember some things so you don't go back there. But don't spend too much time looking behind you. Look ahead. See, God is a God of action. He's working in this world today. And if you get on board with His plan, He will use you. He is faithful. So your best days have not passed you by. Look at these two guys. Man, you being used in a radical way in their 80s. And now the Lord... Verse 8, spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Now, I don't know, uh, in the record it doesn't say that when they came that Pharaoh said, Hey, I want to see a miracle, I want to see a sign. But it's implied. And I think that's probably what he did ask. And it makes me think of the New Testament. Remember when uh, Jesus was before Herod and Herod wanted to see him do a trick. He wanted to see a miracle and Jesus would not even talk to him. Ever? He never even heard the Lord's voice. And there are a lot of people who are saying that they'll just wait and wait and wait and when they finally see the heavens open and the voice of God speak to them, then they'll believe. I just need to see a miracle. You know, I've got to see the evidence. I've got to see that. Well, they've got the evidence all around them. And does it work for Pharaoh after he sees the first miracle? Does he say, oh, the Lord's God. Well, you know, I'll just let the people go and I'll just believe. No, he gets more hard. He makes more excuses. He becomes uh, more difficult to deal with. And by the way, for you Bible students, uh, the word serpent here is a different Hebrew word not quite sure what to make of this, but it, in some context in the Bible it's translated as a sea serpent or even a dragon or a sea monster. And an interesting cross-reference, uh, Ezekiel 29.3 says this, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster. Now this is a, uh, the same Hebrew word for serpent as we see here that lies in the midst of his rivers that has said, my Nile is mine and I myself have made it. I'm not sure what to make of the change of Hebrew word. I just mentioned it so you know it's there. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded and Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. So apparently Pharaoh sitting on his throne the two old dudes cruise in again, let my people go. And perhaps Pharaoh says, well, show me a sign. Isn't that what the people said to Jesus? Hey, show us a miracle that you're really the son of God. And he said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Show us a sign. We want to see a miracle. Give us something. And so the, the staff is thrown down and it turns into a serpent. And I'm sure it must have been a shocking moment for everyone in 
the palace or wherever they're at at this point, I'm sure uh, Moses must have been thinking, wow, he's done it again. Here we go. You know, the staff, this regular wooden staff has become the snake and it's probably, you know, slipping around there and, and people are gasping. Who knows what's going on? And you would think, wow, this is probably it. All he's got to do is pick it up by the tail, becomes a stick again, and, you know, we're packing our bags for Motel 6. But it doesn't happen. Because Pharaoh, verse 11, also called for the wise man, the wise men and the sorcerers, those who practiced, if you want to note this, divination. And they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with, note it, their secret arts. This is an idea... This language here means enchantments, secret things. The, the base word means mysteries. They did the same thing. Pharaoh sees what Moses does. He sees the staff become a snake. There, you know, we can read all this stuff into it about the reactions of people and the supernatural event that's taken place. But all of a sudden, the sorcerers, the magicians who stand in Pharaoh's court they can do it too. And of course, he calls for them. And each one, verse 12, threw down his staff and they turned into serpents. Same Hebrew word here. And uh, as you look at a little bit of the history of this and you look at some Jewish history, we are told that the Jews wrote that they believed that these two men um, were named, at least in Jewish writings, and I'm going to take you to a passage that uh, will show you that. 2 Timothy in your New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now here's how the story goes. As you uh, turn to that Bible passage, they say these two men's name were, were Janus and Jambres. And they say in Jewish writings that when the exodus occurred, that they went with the people of Israel. And Jewish writings tell us, outside of the Bible, that when they went with the children of Israel, so they alleged that they believed in the Hebrew God, they went out to the wilderness and, and the Jewish writings indicate that they were the ones that helped stir up the worship of the golden calf. Now, we don't know that for sure. But these are two men who were in Pharaoh's court. Jewish writings tell us that they're named Janus and Jambres and that they alleged to be converted to worship of the true God, but then they, are, uh, they deceive the Hebrews in the wilderness and then they actually die in Korah's rebellion. Now notice in 2 Timothy 3, it says this. It says, but realize this, verse 1, that in the last days difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. 2 Timothy 3.3 3. Unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Note this. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, 
So these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. So Paul reaches back into the Jewish writings and says that these two guys were the guys in Pharaoh's court opposing Moses with their trick with the serpents. Now as you read a little bit about this, you find some different takes. Maybe these two guys knew that the first miracle would be the snake because Moses performed it before the children of Israel. Maybe there was talk and maybe they stunned the, the two serpents with a stun gun and then they threw them down and the serpents woke up and it looked like a miracle. They actually looked like sticks, but they were, then they, nah, I don't think so. The other thing is, maybe it was just a bag of tricks. Maybe Janice and Jambres just were good at prestidigitation. You know what prestidigitation is? It's trickery. It's the guy on the stage with sleight of hand who can make you look over there and then pull something off that looks miraculous, but he's actually practiced prestidigitation. Not actual magic, but sleight of hand. Is that what's going on here? No, the text doesn't indicate that that's the case. The text indicates that they, through their secret arts, were able to turn whatever they had in their hands, their staffs, into serpents as well. And you say, but wait a minute. That's, that was God's first sign before Pharaoh. Where does that power come from? That's a supernatural thing. Is there some power source that the enchanters and the magicians might have? Well... Look at what God's um, used Lathea to talk to us about tonight. Is there a power source outside of God wherein there could be some sort of what we would term a supernatural occurrence? By the way, when you hear a term supernatural, that simply means beyond the natural. Can Satan do supernatural signs? To a degree, yes. As a matter of fact, if we were to do a quick study, and we're almost out of time here, but if I was to take you on an analysis of signs and wonders in the Bible, I could show you that Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, false Christ will show great signs and wonders. Um, I could show you in the book of Revelation where it says that great signs um, will be performed by the false prophet. Revelation 13, 13 where he even makes fire come down of he out of heaven to the earth in, pres in the presence of men. In Revelation 13, 14, it says he deceives the whole, uh, all those who dwell on the earth because of his signs. Revelation 16, 14, it says they are spirits of demons performing signs. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, it says of the Antichrist, this is the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Now the thing about the power of Satan is that they are false signs, but they are no less supernatural. When I say no less, I mean they're still in the category of supernatural. They, he can't come to the level of God, folks, but he is a supernatural being in the sense that Satan is a fallen angel. And if he is a fallen angel, he has power at his fingertips. Uh, many scholars believe that Satan is one of the archangels who fell. And so that tells you about his power. If indeed he was an archangel, he does have power. His power is limited. 
He can't do anything that God doesn't allow, but ultimately, he's a supernatural force. And so we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the theme of you open the door to supernatural power that's coming from a demonic side, and guess what? You're going to get something that you may not have expected, and by the way, it's going to come from a snake. You see, it's been well said that when it comes to the occult and occult power, the handle of the door is on our side. And if we open the door, we never know what might come in and invade the house. Now certainly, I would say in our day, to bring balance to this, there's a bunch of tricksters and jokers. Some of these guys on you know, daytime television who claim to talk to the dead and stuff like that. Look, some of them do what's called cold reading. They read a person, they throw out common phrases, they latch onto something. Do you have, did you have an Uncle John? Did your mother have a big wedding ring? You know, common phrases, and then they jump on it, and the guy says, how did you know that? Well, he was just cold reading. He was fishing for something, he got it, he latched onto it, and you're in a vulnerable state where you want to believe it. But there are actually manifestations of demonic power. When I was in Nepal, I talked to two men who said they were both invaded by demons after practicing uh, burning incense in a Buddhist uh, temple or in a Hindu temple. It does happen. I've heard, uh, I can tell you story after story of people who have been involved either directly or indirectly with Ouija boards and something happened. And in some cases it led to demonic possession. These things do happen. There are forces at work, spiritual forces in uh, heavenly places, wicked forces that want to invade and mess up people's lives. And they do it. And they are spiritual forces of wickedness. There is a battle. Now, C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, look, people go to two extremes when it comes to spiritual warfare and the demonic realm. A, they either don't believe it and they think it's silly. Or B, they get so... Uh, fascinated with it that they see something demonic behind every tree. The truth is in the middle. You've got to have a balanced approach to this kind of thing. You can't get so extreme that you say you don't believe in it. I remember years ago when I first was hearing about Christianity, I said, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the devil. <laughs> and my, my brother-in-law said, Michael, you can't believe in God and not believe in the devil. I mean, it comes from the same book, man. And it's like, okay. So, you know, sometimes we think we know things. But there are also people, and some of them have unfortunately been on television, who they're trying to get Christians to cough up demons and they're saying that Christians are demon-possessed. If you're a Christian, you can't be possessed by a demon. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Satan can't touch you, 1 John 5. So as a Christian, you don't have to worry about being possessed. Look, you don't have you know, a multi-level dwelling inside you where the Holy Spirit lives on the bottom floor and then demons can hang out on the top floor. It doesn't work that way. You belong to God. You are His own. But there are people out there <clears throat> who go to seances. They mess with Ouija boards. We're uh, in an elders meeting and uh, I've told some of you this story before but we were sharing our testimony one night a group of elders I became an elder at the age of 26 believe it or not at uh, a church in Orange and uh, as we were sharing testimonies this one real reserved elder who was always the last guy to talk a really patient quiet guy his name was Brian so well, here's how I came to the Lord he said one day my friend and I went out and we smoked some marijuana 
And I came home to the house. I was about 18 or 19. I come home to the house and my mom used to have seances in the house all the time. He said, so we came home and the medium was there and she was sitting at the front of this table in this open area, this uh, kitchen area of my house and there were a group of four or five people. So we sat down. We had just smoked some pot, my, my friend and I. He said, and the medium, you know, went back and went into her trance and everybody's hands were on top of the table and he said he started hearing knocking noises underneath the table. He looked and he said everybody's hands were on top of the table and he knew it wasn't rigged because it was his own house. He lived there. He said lights started to flash off and on in the hallway and he was beginning to freak out and then he said the table lifted up off the ground, moved five feet and pinned the medium against the wall. He said, at that moment, my friend and I ran, we found a church, and we got saved. He said, we figured if that was, there was that much power in the satanic realm, we know we needed to get saved. <laughs> and we were, all of the elders in this room are sitting here with eyes like saucers. Brian, we never knew. You're so quiet. You know, That's how I got saved. Wow. Does Satan have power? Yes. His power is limited. He's always... You know, you could say he's on a leash and God's got the leash. God is sovereign. God created Satan. He is not God's evil counterpart on the evil side. No, 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 no. He's created by God. And God does allow him to do certain things in this world. And if you open your life to his power, to his working in his life, he will destroy you. His goal is to swallow you up. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And when pa Peter uses the word for devour of Satan's activity, it literally means he wants to drink you down, swallow you up. You have an enemy. You have to be aware of it. Pray for your family. Pray over your wife. Pray for people that you know and love because God uses prayer. He honors that. We cannot be ignorant of the reality. Satan wants to swallow people up. But in this scene, this is what's so cool about God. You got a couple serpents on the, on the magician's side. You got one serpent on God's side. But guess what happens? All of a sudden, God's serpent starts to have lunch. And it's the other two serpents. And he begins to swallow them up. Now there's more here than just a couple of snakes being eaten by another snake because remember I told you several studies ago that the pharaoh of Egypt used to wear a headdress and it was a cobra and on top of his head he had this headdress with his little snake cobra thing lifting out and that cobra represented pharaoh's sovereignty I am the ruler of supreme pharaoh and he had the cobra now he throws his his, uh, his magicians throw the, the staff down but God's serpent swallows them up. And you know what the image is, of course. What is God saying? You think you are sovereign, Pharaoh? I'm going to swallow you up. You see, Satan goes about this world to swallow up people. But at the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. He swallowed up his work. See, in Hebrews chapter 2, it, or chapter, yeah, chapter two, it tells us that Satan has the power of death. But Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who were all their, lay, all their lives subject to slavery because of the fear of death. You know what Jesus did? He destroyed Satan through the cross and the resurrection. He swallowed him up. 
in the book of Colossians, it tells us that Jesus made an open spectacle of principalities and powers triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2.15. You see, Satan has been defanged through the work of Jesus Christ. You don't have to live in fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You are in Christ. You are his son. You are protected by the power of God. And your inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. So you don't have to walk around in fear. But you have to understand that there is an enemy of your soul. And he goes around trying to swallow people up. But there's a God who's dealt with him decisively. And see, what's ahead for Satan is the lake of fire, which is the second death. See, Satan, much like Pharaoh, is stubborn, hard-hearted. How could you be an angel in the presence of God and think that you would arise and be on his level or higher than him? Well, that's what Satan thought. And Satan is, Pharaoh is a type of Satan because God you know, comes to him, he warns him, he confronts him, but Pharaoh will not let go. If you look at verse 12 again and 13, notice Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs and yet Pharaoh's heart, verse 13, was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now many times in the Bible, the Bible warns about a hard heart. Sometimes the Bible uses a Greek word called sclerocardia and it has the idea of a hardening of heart but the, the root idea is when someone gets a hard heart, they become dull and callous to the things of God. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that you can sear your conscience so that your conscience is no longer dependable. And you can harden your heart to the point where you may not even hear the Spirit's voice. Do not harden your heart, Hebrews 3 says, like the children of Israel did. Because what they did is they didn't listen to the voice of the Spirit of God. And in this case, with Pharaoh... God is working here to confirm his hardness. Ten times in the book of Exodus, you will find that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Ten times God hardens his heart. You want to you wanna be like that? You want to uh, go in that direction? Then God will affirm that. And that is a dangerous place to be. Um, the person who continues to hear the word of God and hardens his heart. At the end of the book of Acts, it says this, quoting from Isaiah, For the heart of this people has become dull, thick, or callous. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I should heal them. God bless America, we say, in the seventh inning at baseball games. God bless America, we sing the song. We want your blessings, God, but we do not want you to push your morals on us. We like our pornography, we like our drugs, we like our lust, and we'll sing it, but we want you in a box. We want your blessings, Lord, but we don't want your laws or absolutes foisted on us. It's much too restrictive and narrow. After all, it's my body. I can do what I want, but bless me, God, bless me. Oh, by the way, I want your blessings, Lord, but I don't want to hear about Jesus Christ because his name is controversial. God bless America, but don't tell us about Jesus. We don't want to hear that stuff. It's too narrow. It's too restrictive. See, how God must lament the condition of people who have hardened hearts because with their ears they scarcely hear, their eyes are shut, 
and they don't know to discern the voice of God. And I'm fearful for a generation, I will tell you this right now, a church generation who enters into buildings week after week with no intention to live for God. You see, it's not so much that I'm fearful for someone's salvation. I'm fearful for the guy who's Judas. I'm fearful for the guy who keeps coming in, sitting in a chair and hearing the word of God and his heart is not softened but hardened. You see, with knowledge comes responsibility, guys. And unfortunately, we live in a church culture right now where I would have to say to you, we do a lot of talk, but I don't know about the walk. And I'm not here to condemn anybody because you know what? There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I know most of you on a first name basis and I know you're, you're laying down your lives. You're trying to live for the Lord. I'm not talking about folks like you. But I'm talking about a generation that scarcely hears anymore. You see, we're, we're at a critical point in the church, I believe. I believe it's time that some of us decide whether or not we're going to step up and do what God's called us to do. It's not easy. Not easy. Think it was easy for Moses? How many times did he say, I'm unskilled, send somebody else, I'm unskilled. You see, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is to do something even when you're afraid. That's something I've been trying to learn. You know, uh, <clears throat> when, you, when you believe that the Lord can do it, you will pass through thresholds in your life. You'll become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. See, the more you trust his word, the more you'll see him act on your behalf. The Lord will act on the behalf of those who wait for him. But the question is, can we wait? Can we trust? One of the things that the Lord's been speaking to me lately is just to every day come before my king and lay down my life. I can't live the Christian life. I've proven that over and over again. I can't live it. But he can live it through me. And so... I've got to set aside my pride. I've got to allow him access to my heart. Father, Lord, we give you our hearts. We've had a patient <laughs> group listening tonight. I know they're hungry for you, Lord. And I am so encouraged by um, seeing the reality of Moses' humanity, how he was so uncertain, how he, he, he failed and he was, he was shaky. Um, and yet you said, just go. It's go time. Do it. I'm going to be there. I've promised. And, and he flailed and he floundered and made excuses. And yet, Lord, you still were there. And when the staff was thrown to the ground, you honored it. And you did a mighty miracle. And Moses is like us, uncertain, fearful at times, questioning his own abilities, not sure if people will listen to him. And yet you said, go, it's go time. Pharaoh's like a lot of people in this world too, Lord. They see the miracles of God. They hear the word of God proclaimed. They feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and yet their hearts are hard. Much that could be said about Israel tonight, Father. As much as they are the apple of your eye, there's a hardness of heart. There's a blindness in part that's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And yet you are a God of redemption. You're a redeeming God. And you tell us that in the end, Israel will be saved. And you tell us that there's a period of time coming 
when much like you will will see here in the book of Exodus to Egypt, you will judge the world and you will pull your people out. Father, help us to be discerning people. Help us to realize the things that we need to live for. They're not always going to be easy, but they are the right thing to do. And help us to remember, Father, um, that if we have days where we flounder and fail, that you're faithful to us, God, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that you'll use us in spite of us, that when we throw down the staff, as it were, you will deliver. But help us to realize, Father, that you do want us to trust you tonight with all of our questions and uncertainties and inadequacies tonight. Father, for the world, for those who may be playing church tonight, for the Christian church as a whole in America, we cry out to you. And we know that um, we first need to start with us, Father, because it's easy to look at others. It's easy to point a bony finger and say, well, they're the problem. But actually, it starts with us right here, right now, that we would obey your voice, that we would heed your call. Help us, Father. Give us the strength that we need and the courage we need to be the people that you want us to be. Help us to trust in you. Even when we don't see the results that we expect, even when it doesn't happen in the time that we, we thought it would, help us to keep trusting you. Help us to believe because with you it's impossible for you to lie. We know you will fulfill your word to us. Help us to hold on tonight, to be strengthened and to know that when we face our pharaohs in life, you'll be there. You'll be there with your power and your strength. We love you and we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.